COP26. 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 The COP26 Summit. In a few weeks' time, 25,000 people will descend on Glasgow. They're coming for the UN Climate Summit, also known as COP26. The delegates might not have the pleasure of sampling the city's mac and cheese pies or tatty scones or a dram of whiskey. Instead, they will meet with others from all around the world to try and agree new ways to bring down greenhouse gas emissions. This conference is really an opportunity for us to change course. It's a massive opportunity for the UK to facilitate that. And I think some good can really come out of it, but it'll take people being bold and being credible um, and consistent between you know what they say and what their actions actually are at home. The success of COP26 really is hanging in the balance here. And that involves really strong leadership by the UK as the host nation. It relies on all of the world leaders coming forward, not just with our high ambitions, but with really clear plans about how we're going to meet those ambitions. This is like when world leaders get put on the spot. That's the purpose of this summit. It's like the embarrassment factor. What are you doing? Are you doing your bit? So, what happens at a UN climate conference? Are negotiators in an event centre really going to stop runaway climate change? And what should we look out for once the Glasgow conference begins? Considering how many nations aren't even able to make it to the COP, how many indigenous leaders, how many of the most affected people and countries aren't being able to make it there. I find it difficult to know whether this will be the success that um, maybe we need it to be. COP26 is not a photo op, nor a talking shop. It must be the forum where we put the world on track to deliver on climate. And that is down to leaders. What I would consider to be a success would be honesty, that we highlight the gap between what we are saying and what we are actually doing. Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking what really happens at a UN Climate Summit. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. Great. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Nathan Thankey, co-coordinator at the Global Campaign to Demand Climate Justice. Hi, Nathan. Hiya. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thanks so much for being with us. So before we dig into COP26, which is going to take place in the UK in just a few weeks, I want to start by talking about these climate summits more generally. Uh, What does COP stand for, first of all, and what exactly are COPs? What are they? So the COP, COP stands for the Conference of the Parties, uh, and that's just like a generic term that's used for a lot of different multinational environmental treaties. So it's every country that is a party to the Climate Change Convention, which was agreed way back at the start of the 90s. And it involves, as the name suggests, parties. So that is government that has to be state. It's primarily meeting between them. It's a party-driven process. It's, you know, they're really in the driving seat. But it has a lot of other actors too. So you also have many observers. And observers can be anyone from, you know, like a business to an activist group. Observers are organized according to nine different constituencies. And that also includes like sub-national actors. So, you know, local government, mayors, that kind of thing as well as indigenous peoples who are nations, consider themselves nations, um, but in the UN system don't have that standing, as well as intergovernmental organizations like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, and like various UN agencies. You've also got 
uh, significant media presence that attends the COPs. So that's kind of who gets to take part. And as COP26, the clues in the name, you know, this is the 26th Conference of the Parties underneath the Climate Change Convention. And by this time, they've developed, you know, standing agendas. They've developed various bodies that serve the convention and um, and meet. And it's really like a, it's hard to explain unless you go in person, but it really is like a multi-ringed circus. And that includes the clowns that attend. You've got side events, which are like these kind of, you know, panels or presentations that people like to launch a report or or just discuss a topic. You've got press conferences where the parties, the states are talking to the media, where also activist groups are talking to the media. You've got actions that take place, which are like very choreographed and restricted versions of direct actions or sort of more like uh, stunts, protest stunts. And you've got almost an unmanageable number of meetings that would be serving the various agendas. So you've got each agenda item nearly has a dedicated group that would go off and meet in parallel. And every so often they get together to have like a stock taking plenary session where they sort of, yeah, check in on progress or the lack of it. That was a very thorough thank you. I feel like I've got a much clearer sense of what we're dealing with here. And so you kind of answered this, but I'm wondering if you can just tell us really specifically, why are these climate conferences such a big deal? Are they kind of seen as like the place to be when it comes to kind of making these big decisions and influencing folks? Or how seriously, I guess, are they taken by the movement and by the by the wider world? Well, I think within um, the climate justice movement, certainly, there are differing views about the usefulness of engaging in the COP. And I think that to understand that, you've got to understand the level of elite and corporate capture over the COP as a decision-making space that there is. But yeah, certainly, you know, 30,000 people normally attend these events. It is a major summit, a major moment in the kind of climate calendar. So it takes this um, prominent, you know, position and a lot of activities in, in, in a year somehow, you know, end up orienting towards the COP. So it is important. It does occupy an important place. And I think those of us that believe that you can only really have an internationalist solution to a global problem like climate change, we believe that the conference of the parties and these international negotiations, they have a role and they are necessary. But at the same time, you know, they're also not the be all and end all. They're not that important. And I say that because there's nothing actually stopping, you know, say the UK government from announcing and implementing kind of the necessary policies that it should take on. You know, it, it could unilaterally do quite a lot. It doesn't need the excuse of the COP or of hosting the COP in order to do that. So, yeah. There's a critique of the COP because, as I said earlier, it's 30 years. It's created a vast and complex set of decisions which make up this international law with some varying degrees of bindingness. There's lots of reporting requirements for countries that created some international norms and principles, uh, legal principles. And they've obviously, in that time, also created the Paris Agreement, the Kyoto Protocol before that. But yeah, at the same time, emissions keep rising, the impacts of climate break time keep piling up, and we don't appear to be kind of any further along in terms of, quote unquote, solving the climate crisis. I think it's a bit, you know, it diminishes the scale of the crisis to just think that it has like a solution. 
that you could just roll out. But I think my personal view anyway is that that's not a, a fault of the UN system in itself. Like the UN system could function in another way, but rather that's, I think, a result of the difficult nature of the climate crisis, right? And the reality that you would need a complete transformation of society and all of its systems, its economic systems, political systems. I mean, you're talking about the way we grow food, the way we produce energy, the way we work. It's like every facet of our lives would need to change to address the climate crisis. And so, yeah, it's not just going to get solved by, you know, a meeting or 26 meetings. And on top of that, you've obviously got, yeah, like vested interests, corporate interests, the interests of polluters, which unfortunately interfere and undermine progressive climate policy at the international stage as they do at the domestic stage. Mm, That makes sense. I've got two specific questions about COP before we move on. One of them is, you know, as we've said, like 25,000 people are expected to, to go along. How many of those people will be actually participating in negotiations like at the table, as it were, and and what will the rest be doing? And then the other question is the people who are participating in negotiations and, you know, have a seat at the table, what would a typical day look like for, say, a government rep or something? What do they actually do? Yeah, so it's it's very <laughs> it's very few people um are actually going and working on the negotiating text and having those huddles in the hallways and going back and forth of the twenty five thousand in, in this case and in other years, you know, a few more. I think that it's, you know, government delegations can be quite large in the hundreds of people. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of those people are actively participating or that they are, you know, even that across the, the technical issues, they go for all sorts of reasons. So you're really talking about like thousands, maybe even high few hundreds of people that are really from the government side of things engaged and when you look at developing country government delegations you often see you know the same negotiators are given quite a lot they're actually tasked with negotiating on behalf of either their country or a block of developing countries called the G77 across a number of different issues whereas usually the richer countries and developed countries have you know a, a specific person tasked or even a specific team tasked with just one agenda item. So there's a massive um, you know, capacity imbalance as well and imbalance in the, the technical expertise between the countries. But yeah, what is everyone else doing? Um, that's a good question. You know, I've been to nine cops now and I think I more or less have like stopped attending the technical negotiations. I would only go to like the opening and closing and some of the, the what they call stock taking plenaries. Because unless you're following one issue from sort of you know start to finish and dedicating almost all of your time to that, it's very hard to, you know, dip in and out because of the level of technicality at which they're speaking. So a lot of us go and actually don't, you know, spend too much time in the negotiating rooms themselves. We would spend our time going to various meetings. So from a civil society perspective, you'd have lots of meetings with other civil society. You also try and grab the attention of the media. You speak to the media. You do have some dialogues with parties. You also speak a lot with the secretariat, the UN secretariat that manages the negotiations. And sometimes you interact and ask questions of the chairs of such meetings. But the government delegates that go and don't 
interact in the negotiations so much. Yeah, I don't want to say anything like too undiplomatic uh, that might land me in a bit of hot water, but a lot of, there are some that come and, you know, like with uh, movement folks as well, you know, maybe are, are there just like as a conference hopper or as a bit of a conference tourist. So a bit of that does go on too, but it's probably a bit overblown from the, the right-wing media. Like most people are there for a significant purpose. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, actually, the similarities. I mean, it seems in some ways more involved than, than say, conference, at least, that there's kind of opportunities for folks to get involved without paying £600 for a ticket or being a member of a certain organisation, which makes it seem more accessible, but I'm sure there's something I'm missing. But um, yeah, that's what came to mind for me as well, especially having it just been conference. Okay, that was very clear, very thorough. I have a much better understanding now of what COP is, so thank you very much. You mentioned the Paris Climate Agreement there, and I wanted to actually talk about that next. So obviously countries from around the world signed the Paris Climate Agreement at a COP conference in 2015. And at the time, it was hailed as a really big step forward in the fight against the climate emergency. So could you just lay out for us what exactly the Paris Agreement is and and why it was treated as as such a big deal? Is that kind of more than COP summits have achieved in the past? Yes and no. So the the Paris Agreement, you know, wasn't entirely negotiated in in the two weeks of COP21 uh, in Paris in 2015. It was actually negotiated over a number of years since there was a mandate given way back in 2011 in Durban at COP17. And this is part of like, a, I think, like a, a longer story within international climate politics, which is that we had a convention that was set up in the early 90s. They then quickly realized that, you know, it's a framework convention that's in the name, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And so countries realize, well, it's not that much use just having a framework. You've also got to have agreements now that fit under that framework, but that actually get countries to do specific action because the framework just sets out some principles and sort of like a basis for coming to further agreement, but it doesn't do that in itself. So they quickly set about negotiating what then in 1997 became the Kyoto Protocol as it was agreed. At COP3 in Kyoto, Japan. And so that gave certain countries specific obligations to do with emissions reductions. It was very, very minimal emissions reductions. You're talking like 5-7% over a certain period. And the first period was 2008 to 2012. So they gave themselves like over a decade to get ready to then actually implement that commitment. But those, as I said, it was only certain countries and they're called Annex 1 countries because they're contained in a in an annex um, that lists them. And yeah, those countries, and that's the developed world more or less, they basically felt like it's not fair that we have to do this. They didn't like to assume the responsibility that they actually have. If you look at who historically is responsible for putting all the carbon in the atmosphere, for digging up all the fossil fuels all around the world and burning all the forests all around the world, and clear-cutting and all of the activities that contribute to the climate crisis, the overwhelming majority is from those countries, is from the developed world. But they didn't like that. They didn't want to take that on. So basically since then, and particularly because the United States, the largest historic polluter and still one of the greatest polluters, and certainly on a per capita basis, the United States did not want to sign up. And even though it had negotiated and watered down the Kyoto Protocol, it did not ratify it under the Clinton and then yeah, Bush uh, administrations. So the United States pushed back so much 
and kept saying, you know, we won't be part of any agreement unless it applies to everybody. Basically, they want to take out their main economic competitor, which is China. And so the United States has always had this attitude that, A, the American way of life is not up for negotiation. You're not going to tell us what to do. And also, B, well, if we're going to have to do anything at all, we're not going to do it unless China also has to do something. So since the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, there's been an effort to kind of forget the Kyoto Protocol and move on to something else which would cover all countries. So that story takes a bit of a long and winding road from 1997, but in 2015 kind of comes to a bit of a conclusion in that they get what they wanted in a sense. So the Paris Agreement, it wasn't the first international climate treaty at all. You already had, as I said, many, many decisions which are legally binding, and you've got the Kyoto Protocol itself that had already been agreed and was designed to be built upon so that you wouldn't just have one commitment period, you would have several and it would keep increasing the ambition that countries had for their targets, their emissions reductions. But instead, we kind of forgot all of that because this narrative took over that, no, we don't have any any legal thing that covers all countries, so we need one and we'll get one and, and they made one in Paris and that would be, then became the big story and what most people understand from the Paris Agreement that it's the first time that we've ever had a climate agreement. It's not. They just got out of the original one, the big polluter countries. So the Paris Agreement, yeah, it does some things that are improvements on the past and builds on the previous agreements. Maybe most importantly or, or symbolically, it includes an aspirational goal to limit global temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. This is like a, an aspiration. The actual target then is two degrees, which is what a lot of us in the climate movement have latched onto and use in order to you know, tell our governments that what they're doing in terms of new coal plant over here, finance for gas over there, that that's incompatible with Paris. But in terms of legally binding you know, obligations, there aren't really any other than reporting requirements under the Paris Agreement because the legal approach that they took was to let each country decide for itself what it was going to do. And only that country can say what it's going to do. Nobody else can tell it what it will do. So what we have instead are these pledges towards the Paris Agreement, which you know, unhelpfully are called nationally determined contributions. And therefore, we have another acronym of NDCs. So you may hear a bit about NDCs during the conference of the parties and in the news. But yeah, there's nothing that really forces them to do anything other than have one and share it with the world. Mm, so if a lot of this stuff is kind of decided ahead of time, and then, as you say, they're not even kind of necessarily stuck to or implemented in the ways that they're supposed to be, it seems like, you know, things like the Paris Agreement and the other ones that you've mentioned have been hailed as these kind of like huge breakthroughs, but ultimately are very limited. So what are the limits of UN climate conferences? Like what are the things that they can't actually do? I mean, I know you're going to be like lots of things, but are there, you know, what are the specific practical things that they can and can't do? Well, if all the parties agreed to do something, they could do whatever they wanted. The challenge is that their way of arriving at decisions in theory is a consensus one, although that consensus only seems to be required when a country like the United States is you know, dissenting. We've had instances where, actually even in Paris, where I believe it was Nicaragua 
was saying, no, we don't accept it. And we don't actually agree with this text that's on the table. We object to it. We have to keep negotiating this. And they just gaveled it through. They just adopted it. So there's a bit of procedural inequity and abuses of power that go on. But yeah, in theory, everyone has to agree. And so I think that's what limits them more than anything else. The fact that we in you know, the offices of power around the world have not elected representatives that really serve people's interests. They serve an elite interest and they serve the interest of polluters. So, of course, that's what's going to limit them. They're not going to agree anything, you know, really radical because of that. But, yeah, certainly the structure, as I said, of the Paris Agreement doesn't help either because it doesn't tell countries what to do, just that they should do something, please. Hmm, interesting. And as you say, when the, the incentives aren't quite there to do anything radical, it's no surprise perhaps that it often shakes out as it does. But let's narrow down to look at the UN Climate Summit. It's really hard to say this. Cli- I think it's my northern accent. I say climate summit, but that's not right anyway. Climate summit happening in a few weeks time. Don't at me. Known as COP26. It's obviously being hosted in Glasgow. So why does it matter who the host country is? I feel like that's something that's important. Yeah, it is. In theory, the host just should provide the venue. They, they assume what is known as the presidency. So it's like a lot of the, I guess, diplomatic, um, you know, they're like kind of the MC for the whole two weeks. They'll have like a welcome gala party, blah, blah, blah. A lot of their diplomatic corps and staff and people from the various ministries, usually of environment, sometimes of other ministries would take on like facilitation roles. They're hosting different things. but yeah, in theory, it shouldn't be as big a deal. It shouldn't be as influential over the negotiations, over the proceedings as they have become. I think it's been an increasing trend in the climate talks for the host country, the presidency of the COP, to really get active, to really drive the agenda, to not be like a neutral facilitator and host, but to actually be, you know, setting the, the tone and crafting like political decisions, declarations. So they sometimes intervene in a way that's helpful, like I think the Peruvian presidency, uh, COP20, which was right before the Paris COP, you know, did a pretty decent job in that there was an impasse over some aspect that doesn't really matter now, but they brought together a lot of countries and they really heard their concerns and they give assurances and they managed to find a common ground. So that's kind of ideally what a host would do. Other hosts, such as the Danish presidency of the infamous Copenhagen COP, COP15, you know, took it upon itself to draft the agreement by itself and then show it to a handful of countries that it deemed to be important and then kind of present it to the rest of the world and say, here, sign this. This is what we're going to have as the outcome. That backfired for them. You know, it sort of blew up in their face in that they didn't get any agreement and the Copenhagen COP is remembered as being an absolutely colossal failure, but they don't usually catch as much of the blame as they should because Western media more or less successfully span a blame China story out of it. So yeah, the host does have a have a huge role and it's more than just the logistics, but this year the logistics have become a very central issue, obviously because we're hosting the COP in the midst of a pandemic and in a country in which we have you know 40,000 plus new cases of COVID a day, which is really high. Um, 
and we have very few restrictions. So some of the practicalities around the COP, and because the COP has already been delayed from November 2020 by a year, so we've sort of been underneath this presidency for longer than we otherwise would have been. It's become a very significant part of COP26's story, the logistics of it, and particularly the logistics around COVID and around participation from the rest of the world, given that we're in this pandemic context. Mm. So if the UK is hosting, and, and it has that significance, as you say, in some ways, kind of we're supposed to be, I guess, holding some folks to account and also having responsibility for getting countries to agree to something quite significant. I, for some reason, I'm not filled with hope that, that that will happen. But what is the UK's climate reputation, I guess? And do you think that that is going to affect our ability to get things done? Yeah, so th- it, this is a great question because the UK government for a while now, not it's not a, a recent phenomenon. I think this actually goes back all the way to Thatcher even likes to and wants to put itself forward as green, right? As ambitious on, on the climate. It used to be that the UK was known as like the dirty man of Europe and they've sought to kind of launder that reputation a bit and engage in what maybe you and I would consider greenwash, or at least I consider it to be greenwash. So the major charm offensive, certainly, you know, we also have a, a media context in this country. We're very, very servile you know it's like a lot of client journalism that goes on so they have that advantage and are really able to put forward a story that you know the uk is green and it's ambitious and it's doing all the stuff around climate and everyone else is the laggard you know completely ignorant of the history and how this country developed and its role in world history but yeah the fact that if you actually you know don't buy the hype and look at the evidence you can see that the uk isn't as green as it says it is. It is financing fossil fuels overseas still. It is still extracting not just, you know, North Sea oil, but giving permits for, you know, for coal in this country in this day and age. And in general, doesn't seem to be taking the climate crisis seriously as a lot of the, uh, some of the gaffes that, you know, Boris and others have been, I guess, embroiled in in recent months. So there is a bit of a risk that for them that, you know, other countries kind of also point that out. Or certainly there's a risk that the civil society and, and the movements in this country take the opportunity, the spotlight, pointing at the UK to, you know, point out that it's actually a climate laggard and is not a climate leader by any stretch of the imagination. And could that be a good thing? Do you think that's something that the government might actually respond to? I mean, the one thing they seem particularly good at is U-turning. Do you think that they might actually be shamed into making some big pledges or or not? Yeah, I wonder this. So I mightn't venture like a totally committed answer either way because I'd go back and forth on it. On the one hand, I think, yeah, you're totally right. It, it seems to be what they respond to, you know, whether that's like Marcus Rashford and the school meals, like they've done U-turns before in the recent past. Could they do it again over the fact that we're hosting the COP? I do think that they've got some more to give in their back pocket and are probably waiting to get pressured in order to give it. But that's a very smart strategy, right? Because you you give a little bit knowing that it's not fully what you've already decided to give uh, in order to then, when you're pressured, be like, okay, fine, you know, we'll up the ante and produce a slightly better commitment. But yeah, they're very good at talking the talk. Obviously, there's a big difference between that and then implementation, walking the walk. 
Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Like that strategy of kind of holding back your last best offer um, and then pulling it out and making yourself look like a hero. Very interesting. I would wager a guess that, that, that we might see something like that. Let's talk a bit more specifically about COP26. So what are the big events that we can expect from the conference in Glasgow? What is the main aim of this one, if there is one? Yeah, so there's a bit of a, a hangover from the Paris Agreement still in that when they agreed the Paris Agreement and ratified it in in 2015 and then 2016, there was a lot of detail that wasn't worked out. So the next three years were time that they gave themselves to actually go and develop some of that detail. So they were working from 2016, 2017 and 2018 on what they called the sort of implementation guidelines, the Paris rulebook. So a set of decisions that applies to all of the various areas of the Paris Agreement. But there's one big area that they never managed to come to any agreement on, and they missed successive deadlines in 2018 and 2019 at the last COP. And that is a whole set of decisions around Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which has to do with, it's worded in such a way that it has to do with cooperative approaches to dealing with climate change, which everyone, more or less, up until now, has assumed to mean carbon markets and trading of offsets. And so they haven't finalized the rules on this. And there's um, a lot of concern that they have to get the right rules so that they can avoid things like double counting of emissions reductions, where basically you undertake some activity that you say reduces your emissions by such an amount, and then you sell the credits that that would generate to another country so that basically that they can continue to pollute but look better on the books. And there's some concern that where does that get counted as a reduction? Does it get counted in the place that has happened or in the books of the accounting the of the country that bought it? So they want to like clarify that it can only be once. You can't count the same activity twice. But there's a lot more than that. And some of us have a more like not just a technical critique of carbon markets, as in you could tweak some of the rules and they would be better, but a fundamental critique of them in that we don't believe that that's the correct approach, not just from an ideological perspective, but from a realist one, a pragmatic one. The market mechanisms that have existed in the past haven't worked at all. And you look at the European emissions trading scheme has collapsed. So that's, I mean, the main thing in Glasgow at a technical level is around finalizing those rules, but they may not do it because it was also the main one of the main agenda items, main debates at the last COP in Madrid, uh, and they didn't manage it there. It was also one of the main agenda items in the previous COP before that in Katowice in Poland. Didn't happen there either. There's, you know, basically a huge gap between countries' positions, and it's a very contentious issue. So it's possible that it still doesn't get resolved in Glasgow. And what I'm saying is that that mightn't be such a bad thing because the last thing that would be helpful for dealing with the climate crisis would be to set up an international carbon market with some you know, rules attached to it. So that's one of the big technical things. But politically, there are other debates to be had. I think maybe you know, three big ones. One is that we're really not on track to keep temperatures to 1.5 degrees, to limit them to 1.5 degrees as we aspire to in the Paris Agreement. And as we really need to do, because we're already seeing the devastation and chaos of just one degree warming, which is what we're at, um, or 1.1. 1. 1. 
Um, so we really, really need to do that, but we're way off track. If all of the pledges of the Paris Agreement were actually met, which you know, there's not much to say that they're going to be met, but if they were met, we would still be on track for 2.7 degrees Celsius warming, I think. So, yeah, that's a big topic that the countries are going to have to deal with. They have to improve their offers. And that means not you know, declaring a net zero sleight of hand, net zero by 2050 even, but it's about taking real action short term to radically reduce emissions, which the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says we need to do at a rate of 7% globally uh, annually from now until forever. We just need to keep doing that. So one big thing is basically the level of ambition that's in those nationally determined contributions needs to be improved. Obviously, this takes me on to my second point, which is that some countries can't do that unconditionally, right? Some countries, the majority of the world, are in different stages of economic development and have been also, you know, after having been colonized and exploited relentlessly for centuries, yeah, find themselves in, in a position where it's not just easy to forego fossil fuel-based development and fund a transition of their whole economy. To do anything even approaching that would require significant financial and technological transfer. And you can think about that however you want. You can think about that as reparation and repayment for ecological debt or climate debt. Or you could just think about that as like a very necessary thing that if you want to avoid global climate change, it's going to affect everybody, every country, then some countries are going to need financial assistance or support or cooperation to be able to do that. However, the offer for climate finance is really, really pathetic. Um, it's been the same offer for over a decade. Since 2009, the developed countries, the rich countries have talked about $100 billion uh, US dollars per year by 2020 that they were going to mobilize, but they kept shifting the goalposts. So far from being, you know, that's all going to be grants, that's all going to be delivered per year, it's not going to be double counted, it's all going to be additional. They've started to count kind of everything. So repackaged development assistance and aid, okay, that's my climate finance. Loans, okay, that's my climate finance, and that counts towards this. So there's a big fight about climate finance in general, and particularly about that goal, because you know we're in 2021, 2020 has been and gone, the 100 billion has not materialized. And anyway, it was an insufficient target to begin with, because that was not a figure that was based on the real need, either for developing countries to take on emissions reductions activities, or for them to adapt to the impacts of climate change that we're already facing or to deal with the impacts that they can't adapt to, what in the jargon is called loss and damage. That doesn't cover it. You know, that figure, the true figure is in the trillions per year. And we're talking about 100 billion per year, which anyways, we're not delivering. So negotiating a new goal and seeing some actual pledges come forward, like serious commitments for serious cash is another, the second major debates and talking points at the COP. And then the third is, Kind of around what I just mentioned, around those impacts, around the losses and damages that are already accruing. Because although we want to mitigate climate change and we want to keep the temperature to below 1.5, even at this level of warming, even at one degree, and certainly at 1.5 degrees, there are going to be very serious impacts to 
a lot of people around the world, right? The most vulnerable people and, and countries, communities in particular. But that's not being adequately addressed at the international level underneath this um, framework. It's being largely limited to technical discussions and oh, we'll share some expertise and we might list some stuff on a website somewhere. But what we really need is money to go towards activities around loss and damage. So that's sort of third big thing that I predict will be all high up the political agenda for many developing countries because they're already facing those impacts, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I can't say I'm surprised at the gap between what needs to be done and what might be done, but we're going to wrap up in a second by, I guess, getting your reflections on what you think actually might come out of this, what your expectations are. But before we do that, you mentioned earlier COVID and and the fact that obviously this um, conference was postponed because of the pandemic. And so I'm wondering about how the pandemic is impacting the conference. Like, for example, are delegates from poorer countries going to be able to attend and how are things like the big spikes in gas prices and petrol shortages and things like that going to affect, for example, how UK government reps talk about fossil fuels and things like that? How does all of the kind of COVID stuff intersect with what we've been talking about? Yeah, I'll answer your second question first because it's a shorter answer. Gas prices is not going to affect how governments talk about fossil fuels at the COP because governments don't talk about fossil fuels at the COP. It's crazy. But they don't. Uh, it's like <laughs> the forbidden, the forbidden words. You're not. Don't mention it. You're not allowed to talk about fossil fuels. Never on the agenda. I've never seen that in text. You know, it's it's like taboo. You can't mention it. Um, that is yeah, wild. Absolutely wild and shocking. Because like, well, if you if any sensible people were going to get together and be like, oh, we should make some agreements and a process to like limit climate change. First on the agenda, you'd be like, we should probably do something about fossil fuels, but because of the yeah corporate capture that I was previously referring to, you know they've gotten away with it a little bit. So that yeah, that's my answer to that question. But the the impact of COVID on the COP this year is really significant. You know, government will put out a lot of propaganda saying that they've done X, Y, and Z to help bring people to the COP and and to you know get rid of restrictions. We obviously only now have seven countries on the red list as of very recently or coming into effect quite soon. And so, yeah, in theory right now, everyone can travel, but you have to understand a couple of different things. First is that globally, we have a massive vaccine inequity, what some call vaccine apartheid, where we don't actually have lots of people in this world with access to the vaccine or the ability to get it because rich countries in the World Trade Organization have resisted patent waivers. They don't want to share this technology, which you and I funded Right, the AstraZeneca vaccine, like that's public funds that went in to develop it. And our governments are now saying, actually, you know, we can't share that knowledge and that information and that life saving necessary medicine with the world. So they're going to have to buy it. So because of that, you've got people coming from countries where, you know, the vaccine take up is a lot less. They're coming to a context where it's quite likely that they might, you know, they might get COVID here and then bring it back to their country. That's a concern for us, and I think should be a concern for everybody. In the venue, we're going to have to be distanced, wearing masks. That's good, because hopefully that will limit the spread of COVID. But it certainly does make for a difficult, you know, the negotiations are really about trust. They have to be held in person. That requires you to be kind of up close and personal with people. 
So there may be some effects there. But yeah, principally, the knock-on effect has been that many people from the global south, both government and a social movement, civil society organizations, indigenous peoples, they are not able to come. The costs associated with this are really high, not just to get here and the travel costs, but also to stay here because many of them have been planning to make use of the UK government's offer to pay for the accommodation for people coming from red list countries, but they've now just more or less scrapped the red list apart from for those seven countries. So all those people now are on the hook. They've got to pay their own accommodation costs or else they've got to pay to change their flights. So yeah, what I think we're going to see is probably the widest COP uh, ever. There's already a massive imbalance in participation. There are already, although I don't know because I've never been to labor conference, but possibly it's more accessible than labor conference, but it is very inaccessible. It's hard to go to the COP. You've got to jump through a lot of hoops. You've got to have a lot of resources. And yeah, you know, we're also, you know, in the context of UK's hostile environment as well, plus a winter in Glasgow. You know, great city though it is, I think for lots of people coming from around the world, these are going to be challenges. But yeah, the COVID impact on the conference this year is essentially just that a lot of people who really need to be there because the global majority, many of them coming from the most impacted and most vulnerable countries and communities, they're not going to have a seat at the table. They're going to be trying to tune in online and ignored or just, you know, it'll bypass them entirely. Mm. I mean, I think that there's so much in that answer and there's a lot more, you know, to say both about the kind of, as you say, the vaccine apartheid, but also it links to your earlier points about essentially the legacy of colonialism and how that's playing out and all the stuff we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it just feels to me like such a crucial, a crucial thing to be paying attention to the intersection of how the pandemic is just going to worsen the existing inequalities that I imagine, as you say, are already kind of really rife and present at such events. Maybe that's another podcast. Maybe that's a follow-up. Feels like there's lots more to say, but for now, we're going to have to wrap up. But I wanted to, I know that you're kind of loath to make predictions, but I wanted to get, I guess, your general expectations for the COP. Lots of the countries attending are making big promises about cutting greenhouse gas emissions and whatnot. If all of the countries actually live up to these promises, will it be enough to stop a dangerous rise in global temperatures? Are you hopeful? What are you saying? What's going to happen? In a word, no, because we're already at those dangerous levels. I think this is my message for anybody listening is it's not about future warming. It's about the warming that we are already experiencing. Yeah, I think that, I mean, my hope doesn't really lie with governments talking to each other anyway. My hope comes more from what I see around me. I see in the climate movement, the way in which it is evolving, the way in which we are deepening, developing our understanding of the crisis and of what we need to do to get out of it, the way we're building bridges. It's not the same climate movement that existed five, certainly 10 years ago, that was you know, very, very white, very, very middle class and advocating basically, yeah, the, in the interest of white middle class people in the global north. I think the climate movement has kind of been bust open and definitely you see this with like the school strikes. They're on point, like they know what they're talking about. They're talking about system change from the ground up. And that gives me an incredible amount of hope because that's, you know, kind of the future of the movement. But expectations around the COP and outcomes sort of from the official process, I think we stand a good chance of derailing the false solutions agenda of the carbon markets and of offsetting and of 
debunking the myth of net zero as ambitious instead of we're going to show the world what it really is, which is not zero. It's a creative accounting kind of measure. It's a greenwashing tool. If you've got the likes of Shell talking about net zero and they're going to be net zero, their business model depends on them digging up oil. They're not going to be net zero or else net zero is meaningless. So I think we have a good chance of using the COP to push back on some of this, the more sophisticated climate denialism 2.0. I think we can use it to push back against that. And then my more like modest, meager hopes for what governments might agree to are around this finance piece, that they could agree a definition, like a common operational definition for what climate finance is so that they don't, they can no longer continue to count all these loans that was going to something else suddenly as climate finance so that then they can, in the future, deliver that climate finance and to the scale it's necessary. So I want to see some progress in that direction. And I mean, I would love, I would love this if we began talking about how to equitably transition away from fossil fuel production and use, but it's just not something I can see collectively all governments coming out and putting in a COP decision. But I can see some countries, because there are countries now kind of beginning to be first movers and take that stand and say, no, what we need to do is limit fossil fuel production globally, like obviously on, on different timescales in different countries, but that's where this is heading to. And we need to be ready for that and finance what that transition looks like and you know make it a just transition with workers and communities. So, you know, there could be some seeds that start to sprout for that. But yeah, it's not going to be the full flyer of a COP decision saying by 2030, we won't have fossil fuels anymore. I mean, certainly not if you can't even say fossil fuels. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, yeah I would. That is uh, a very shocking takeaway for me. Thank you so much, Nathan, for taking us through this. It's been really comprehensive and clear. And I think hopefully for listeners as well, just a, a good sense of, where we're at, how we've got here and just how far there is to go as well. So thank you so much for your time. That's all we've got time for this week, though, sadly, on the Weekly Economics podcast. Nathan, thank you. Thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work and the great stuff you're going to be doing at COP, where should they go? What should they read? How can they find you? You can unfortunately find me on Twitter, but probably the better thing to do is to follow the COP26 coalition check out their website they're also on twitter and instagram just search them and yeah from there hopefully you'll be directed to many different organizations the global campaign to demand climate justice has over 200 members so we'll try and put out some stuff as well on social media perfect thank you so much that is it for today's weekly economics podcast but we'll be back soon with more as always if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it you can drop us a line with your comments and questions if you want we're at nef on twitter the weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation produced by becky malone and researched by margaret welsh i'm aisha thomas stay safe